Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products that customers love. And that is what product managers most like to do. When I'm working with a group of product managers to help them move towards product mastery, I always ask them to introduce themselves by sharing what they love about product management. Among the numerous answers, in the last year, the most frequent response is this issue about customers and product love. They say it's to create value for customers. Now, many product managers also aspire to create their own group to accomplish this, whether it's an entrepreneur inside an organization type activity or as an entrepreneur founding their own company. Further, product managers make the best founders. To explore what being a founder really involves, I had a discussion with Ryan Frederick. He is a product manager, founder, and now helps software companies build great products. He has put his lifetime of experience into a book titled The Founder's Manual, and we discuss the key strategies. And remember, if you hear something that you want to share easily with your colleagues, or you just want to go back and look at the details, we take notes for you about everything we discuss. Also, we have a handy one-page PDF. It's our action guide to help you put into practice right away the key insights from this discussion. And you'll find both of those resources, the show notes and action guide at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 302. I hope you check it out. Now, let's talk with Ryan. Ryan, thank you so much for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Chad. So you wrote the Founder's Manual, and I think this is a very uh, interesting book for anyone interested in doing their own venture, the, something new. kind of really lays out a lot of detail about what to expect. And as product managers, we tend to either some, I know some product managers stay in the role for 20 plus years and just love it. A lot of people tend to kind of move up maybe into operational roles, different leadership roles. And a lot of people move out to start their own thing. And detail that you provide, I think is really helpful to help people know what to expect because uh, it's different being out on your own in the phases you go through. And yet, we know a lot of what to expect, too, because we're product managers. I'm hoping that you can kind of take us through some of the key aspects of, of what you have formulated in the book and help product managers think about starting a new venture. Yeah, I think that there are a, a lot of similarities you know, between building a product inside of a, a, a corporation, you know, for example, and, and doing it on your own and trying to commercialize it you know, through a startup. And, and I did really write the book, and I'm glad that you were able to pick up on it. I really did write the book, you know, mostly around awareness, right? Because I think a lot of people think about, you know, the entrepreneurial journey and being a founder and starting a company, and, and most are unaware of, of what that means and, and I mean, re- truly means, and, and many aspects of it are, are counterintuitive, just as many aspects of, of building a successful product as a as a startup or inside of a corporation, I think are, are counterintuitive. Good. So it certainly does fit, but some new things for us to be thinking about. And you structure the book kind of in three major areas, the founder flow, startup flow, and product flow. Can you just hit some highlights of, of concepts for us there and kind of take us through each one? Yeah, I structured the book in those three segments because I felt like it was important to address 
the sort of human aspect of being a founder and, and what, what that means and, and how to be best prepared. And from a product perspective, I felt it was important to talk about product management and, and how to build a, a successful product especially in the very early stages and then and then how to commercialize you know that product into a, into a company that that maybe has a chance of of having some com- commercial success right on top of that product and the flow piece came out of the fact that I became pretty interested in in flow as a concept you know a decade or more ago at this point and flow for those that aren't familiar with it is this concept of if you if you know the principles of performing at an unconscious high state and high level that that you can achieve flow which is often more associated to athletes being in the zone mm-hmm. and and so flow is now starting to creep into professional sectors a little bit more and trying to get professionals and knowledge workers to be um, able to get into flow states to perform at their best and so I started to to really find the concept of flow interesting. And then I started to just sort of, you know, jot down some notes and some concepts of, well, are there principles to being a founder, building a product and starting a company that if people knew what those were, that it could help them increase the odds of success in, in all three of those areas. And, and then that became the book. And that's why the book has the three sections to sort of speak to those three areas. Okay, that's excellent. And we'll learn more about that kind of uh, flow too. I, I remember recalling books before on that flow state, right? And trying to get into this much higher productive state. And every now and then I find myself able to, it certainly is a discipline, I think, to practice. As we talk through this, it might be helpful to have a specific scenario. And uh, World War One that I have ran into before is a, a product manager. So we can call her Lisa and uh, say that she has a, an idea that she brought to her company and the company's not interested in pursuing it, but she's she really thinks that this has merit and she's going to strike out on her own. Is that a good scenario for us to go through? It is because you know I think that that you know that happens frequently, and it's not unlike even a non product manager, right? Who who discovers a problem or or it, and stumbles into a problem, even potentially that says, okay, maybe this is interesting enough to to work on. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that that the thing that everybody should realize is once you take the entrepreneurial leap and you make a conscious decision that you're now going to go try to solve a problem that people care about in, in a way that you can build a, a commercially viable enterprise around, is that by definition an entrepreneur is a problem solver. Mm-hmm. And you, you start you start out with this hypothesis of here's the problem and and our ability to prove that we can solve it, and then and the entrepreneurial life is just a series of unending problems, right, and obstacles along the way to try to get the product to to try to get customer product fit for the product and then have it be commercially viable and successful. It's just a a tsunami of of problems and obstacles along the way. And that's really the first thing that I would say to to Lisa, right? Who, mm-hmm. Who's thinking about now pers- pursuing this endeavor outside of of the company that she's at, is she's got to then look at herself as a problem solver inside of the product, and then as a problem solver, right, for her company that's now going to try to commercialize this product, 
And there's lots of challenges associated to that. One of the chapters in, in the book I call running to the fire. And it's really the, the, the concept of we are not wired as humans and we're not even nurtured as humans to run to, to problems. And mm-hmm. when I say run to the fire, I'm essentially, you know, saying you've, you've got to run to problems and, and really we, we do everything in, in our, in our lives. And our objective really is how do we make our lives as problem free as possible? Which then means we're actually not that great at problem solving and dealing with problems and confronting problems. And so I think one of the things that Lisa would have, have to deal with initially is, is making sure that she's in a mental state and an, and a, and an emotional state to not only solve the problem <clears throat> that she thinks her product is going to solve for its customers or users, but how is she going to deal with and solve the problems of now trying to get a commercially viable enterprise up and running? And you, you shared with that that we uh, like to avoid problems, right? We like to avoid the pain associated with them. And part of this is mindset that we, we certainly need to be expecting. As you also said, lots of obstacles all along the way of this entrepreneurial journey, especially as you're trying to find that market product fit in the beginning and then crossing the chasm, scaling, you know, making your, your organization work. What are some of the mindset things that you would tell Lisa to be embracing to help her? You know, kind of build up some, I don't know what we want to call it, you know, gusto to, to be an entrepreneur and facing these problems. Yeah, I think one of the things that, that someone who's not, uh, who's a first time entrepreneur, it, that they have to um, sort of deal with and confront is what's, what's there. And maybe it's even before they make the, the decision that they're going to go do something entrepreneurial mm-hmm. is they've got to, they, they've got to make the, decision and understand what their risk tolerance is hmm. right and and how much how much risk are they willing to take on and to sort of put up with and and can they live with and most people never really understand and ask themselves what their risk tolerance really is and it's risk tolerance financially it's risk tolerance emotionally it's risk tolerance physically it's risk tolerance mentally it's ego sort of risk tolerance right because especially if lisa's coming out of a successful position and career as a product manager at a at a corporate and now she's going to go out on her own well if it doesn't if it doesn't work is 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 she okay with that from a career and sort of reputation perspective mm-hmm. and so I think there's a there's ways that people can figure out what their risk tolerance is and what their risk comfort is. And one of the ways to do that is to start taking incrementally riskier bets and then tracking how you react to it and tracking how you're responding and then track what your progression is like. And so one of the things that, that it's easy, the easiest thing I found with to start with assessing, assessing your own risk tolerance is to do something physically uncomfortable and physically new and physically challenging because when you do something physically uncomfortable and challenging, it has mental and emotional and reputation um, Mm -hmm. risk and protection associated to it. So go to a climbing gym, for instance, and start taking rock climbing lessons because there are guides there and, you know, they're, they're interested in you succeeding and they're interested in you progressing and enjoying it. It's a safe environment, but you can begin to sort of 
fuel your anxiety from your first session to maybe your fifth or sixth session. And then you can see your progress. And then I say, and I recommend to people that they keep a journal as part of that and they track how are they emotionally feeling? How are they mentally feeling as it, as it, it's getting more challenging and it's progressing. And I just think that most people who take the entrepreneurial step never really assess their relationship to risk before they do it. And then, and then they're in uncharted territory because now they're going to have feelings and they're going to have these emotions that they're not sure where they're coming from. And they could be associated to risk and they've just never figured out what their relationship to risk is. Yeah, I, I like the technique there too. I, I have done the, the climbing gym also as a team building activity, right? To just, uh, it's a great way to dive in and build some trust with each other when you're rappelling together and on belay. And the aspects that go with that risk profile also impact those around you, right? So the, the, this varies based if you're part of a family and you have spouse and kids or if you're on your own and getting help from friends or family can be part of this, can't it? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that, that is a misnomer about entrepreneurship is that you do it on your own. Mm. No one does it on their own, right? It, 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 even if they have, you know, it, it, certainly if they have business partners, you know, involved, they're not doing it on their own. But it, it, if you've got team members or as soon as you have team members, you're not on your, on your own. I will add a caveat to that and we'll talk more about it later though, that, that even though no one accomplishes anything uh, entrepreneurial on their own, it's also still often a very lonely existence and journey. And, and we'll talk more about mm-hmm. that. But absolutely. One of the things that I write about in the book is I don't think that people should take the entrepreneurial step in, in you know, in, in, in Lisa's case, if Lisa's personal life is not in order, that, then I think taking the entre- an entrepreneurial leap when your personal life has a little bit of, of, of upheaval in it is not a great idea. I've even seen people try to start companies, you know, when they, you know, were moving or to move cross country or they're in a, 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 in a not terrific personal relationship. If you don't have great order and structure in your life, and now you're going to take the entrepreneurial leap on top of that, that is a super, super challenging environment and existence to make it all work. Because one of the things that is undeniable is once you take the entrepreneurial leap, your product and company can be all-consuming. And if you've got other challenges and other aspects of, of your life, especially your personal life, the company is going to try to take and all the energy and all the time and all the emotion and all the attention that you have. And it's not going to leave you that much for other areas of your life for a period of time. And if that, if the other aspects of your life aren't pretty solid, it's going to be incredibly challenging to try to balance it all. Yep. It is a commitment and it's uh, hard to explain it without having been, been in that environment before. Right. So having been a part of a couple startups for me, they are very consuming and it's, I, I tend to approach life in a very integrated way. Anyhow, I don't really see this balance between life and, and work. It's just all together. But uh, for me in that startup environment, that's pretty much all I'm thinking about. So good or bad. That's the way, way it is for me. Yeah, and I think it should be for most people because mm-hmm. if you're going to have a chance at it working, you, you better be you better be all in and and you better be focused on it. You better be very disciplined. And there's just a period of time where it, it, it just doesn't allow you. One of the things I say in the book is that 
you're you're going to be you know you're going to be a terrible friend and you're going to have you're going to have essentially no social life. And at the beginning, that's kind of true because your friends can't relate to to you starting this company and what you're experiencing and what you're going through. And you're probably going to be out of the loop of you know what the current events are and what the what the current news is, and and you're probably just not going to be that interesting because your company is going to take all of that time and attention from you to try to make it successful and to make it work. And it's, it's just startups are, are unreasonable in the, the, uh, the amount of focus and attention that they require from you to, to attempt to make it work. Yeah. There's always more to do than there's time to do. And you mentioned that this, you know, that they're not, uh, alone in the sense they have other people in life, certainly, and the team in the future, but it is a lonely sort of activity. And because of it is also the, uh, can be very overwhelming. I have found personally and, and recommended others being part of some kind of entrepreneurial group. You know, maybe it's a, a mastermind type group that meets virtually, but something, uh, a group where you're interacting with others that are going through the same sort of thing that you can share challenges and solutions with each other. And kind of just have that be your club in the sense too, that you're going through the same activities together, that that that's, can be really helpful. Your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think in, in your, your, your story with Lisa, I think that one of the things that Lisa would, would be challenged with is She's now going to go from this corporate environment and this corporate setting where she's got, you know, she's got colleagues and coworkers and there are systems, right? And there are processes and, and there are ways that things get done inside of, in, inside of that corporation. She's then going to go to an environment where at the beginning, nobody's really going to care what she's doing and why she's doing it. And she's probably going to go from being very quickly from feeling like she was a part of something to now feeling like she's on an island by herself. Yep. And that's pretty, that's pretty normal. But then what founders have to do to your point is they really quickly have to go find their own, right? They've got to go find other founders uh, to be able to kibitz with and to be able to get support from and to, and to, help guide each other. And, and in some cases, you know, lick each other's wounds and say, Oh, I've been through that. Oh man, that is really a tough period to go through. I get it. And I'm having the same experience now. And you really need that support group because starting a company is totally irrational. Building a new product is totally irrational because most new products and most new companies don't work. We've all heard the statistics but where I, where I think it even becomes more sort of irrational is you, you, you often are making a choice and a conscious choice, you know, mind you, to leave something that could be much more comfortable and much more stable and much more secure to go do something th- that is not only the odds stacked against you, but at the beginning, you're going to feel like it's you against the world and you've got to do everything that you can to change that dynamic of, of it, you not being against the world and at mm-hmm. least having a little bit of a club and a little bit of a tribe that can relate to what you're going through to then be able to have a support mechanism from, from other similar people. We'll get back to more founder strategies with Ryan in just a minute. 
but I want to tell you that product managers are huge levers in organizations, really. They have large impacts on revenue as they create value for customers. You already know this, but my guess is you're not being as used as well as you could be inside your organization. To increase their effectiveness even further, help product managers, organizations ask me to take them through the Rapid Product Mastery, the RPM, experience. This is a nine-week journey where we meet virtually for 75 minutes each week, getting everyone on the same page, improving performance together. I just started two new groups. One is a repeat customer working with more of their product managers, and the other learned about the RPM experience right here, listening to this podcast. I'm taking on two more groups. If you want to be one of them and help your product management colleagues, check out theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM to learn more. I would love the opportunity to work with you, and I hope we get a chance. Now, back to more Founder Insights with Ryan. In the Founder's Manual, we've talked about some of the founder issues, and you have the next session, the startup flow. What are some of the big things that Lisa should be ex- expecting and working on next? Yeah, I think that the, the, the challenges that come in, it, with them trying to commercialize a company that, that people often get wrong is, is people start looking for crutches, and they start looking for areas where they can they can lean on things, but then then you know the new founders tend to lean on them too much, mm-hmm. and so one of the the refrains that that you know I often often hear is, well, I'm struggling to get funding for my company, and I'm I'm struggling to get the the ear of investors, etc. And the best funding that that has ever existed is customer funding, mm-hmm. because you you're proving that customers are valuing what you're doing. They're, they're validating the fact that the problem is worth paying for. And there's no better way to then get other investors to pay attention to what you're doing than to have customers already paying for you to solve their problem, right? Through the, through the product or service that, that you've, you've now presented to them. And yet who we are so, because people because people are messy and, and customers can be complicated and because we're complicated you know, beings ourselves as, as founders, we tend not to pursue customer funding to the same level that we could. And, and often it's, it's you, people go out and start trying to raise investment dollars from you know, in, investors of all sorts, could be family and friends, could be institutional investors mm-hmm. you know, across the board. And investors are not going to invest into in a company until it's investable. And a big piece of that is in you know startup language. It's called traction, right? Yeah. How many customers do you have? What are they paying? How how many have you retained over a time? How fast are you adding customers? What's it what's it cost you to acquire a customer? All these metrics, right, as part of this sort of elusive traction. And I just think that people need to be focused more on. Well, if they've got a customer who said yes, you know, to being a customer and paying, you know, the fifty dollars a month or the thirty nine ninety nine a month or whatever it is for the product or at whatever level you're charging and pricing, well, then go go to that customer and say, well, if you're finding value in this, is there an opportunity for you to become a strategic investor and to play a different role, you know, in the company? Maybe take a royalty, maybe some equity, etc. 
but have a conversation that extends a, a pay, an early paying customer into someone th- that now is a strategic investor versus going and talking to strangers who don't value the problem, don't understand the problem and who it's going to be a much harder road to get them in, to invest. And, and I've been a part of, of a couple of products and companies where we funded the initial product and the initial company through customers. And, and in one case, we went to a very strategic customer and asked them for a fairly substantial amount of money to build the product. And, and they said yes. And we had then entered into a royalty agreement with them. And we never had to raise outside capital after that. And it, 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 and the reason I think that people don't do this more often is they look at it and they say, okay, I've got a customer who's now become a customer. Well, I don't want to ask them to maybe become an investor or some sort of strategic partner in some way to help fund the company further because then I might lose them as the, as a customer. And so we create these sort of scenarios in our heads. And I think it would be a challenge for Lisa, right. Coming out of a corporate position into this, you know, you know, entrepreneurial endeavor for her to think about having a customer be more than just a customer and, and then, and then fund the company and fund the product through customers in very creative sort of tangential ways and and I think more more early founders and startups need to think about how do they get more capital out of customers who've already said, yeah, I value this, I value the product and your approach to the problem. It's a very good tip, and it's something that I have not thought of much before, uh, actually getting investment through customers themselves. On the other side of that, what, what do you think about bootstrapping a new venture? It really depends on what does the founder or founders what do they want out of the company, right? And if if it becomes something where, and what's the potential? If the potential of a company is to become a $100 million company, that's going to be pretty hard without outside investment. If it's, if it's a, and that's, and that, that's also super rare, by the way. So, you know, there's so much talk about, you know, size and scale and, and all of this stuff. And, and that's highly, highly unusual. And so when people talk about bootstrapping, to me, again, that's really about funding through customers, right? And funding through operations and funding through revenue from customers. The other sort of piece of bootstrapping that I think often gets just overshadowed is when people talk about bootstrapping, what they're really then saying is they're funding the company off of their personal credit cards or off of a second Mm -hmm. mortgage and things like that, which is... It's it's bootstrapping, but there's still financial leverage there, right? They're right. they're now leveraging a they're not leveraging a bank, right? They're now leveraging a mortgage company. They're leveraging a credit card company, so it's not like all of that money is coming out of their own coffers. Typically, that money is still leveraged against some other financial you know institution and some other financial vehicle in a true bootstrapping sense, right? which happens very, this is also super rare now, right? So we're talking about extremes, right? Is rarely does a founder have enough financial liquidity of their own that they don't have to leverage some other, you know, um, financial mechanism through some other organization. So true bootstrapping is also pretty rare now. And so I just want to clear that up because people talk about bootstrapping. Well, bootstrapping typically means, you're now using some other financial mechanisms that you have personally to fund the company. And if the company doesn't work, then 
you, you're, you're, you're going to take on debt and you're going to take on personal debt th- that it, you're going to have to pay back irrespective of whether the company succeeds or not. And, and you know, that, that is also something that people need to be very aware of because Capital One and Citibank have funded and Discover have funded more startups and more companies than any investment mechanism and financial mechanism known to man or woman. Yeah. And I think about bootstrapping in the sense of, you know, you are trying to generate customers at a fast enough rate and the revenue from them is keeping the light tr- lights turned on, right? And future growth. But the the big factor for me there is where is this company heading? And if you need to grow fast, like if your business model depends on network effects and you're getting enough customers and enough providers in at the same time, then you're going to need additional funding to make that happen. So I guess, and as you said, it kind of depends on scale and what the objective there is. Yeah, okay. absolutely. It, if, if you if you think that you, and it's really an assessment of what's the opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you've got the ability to say, and this isn't a question that often investors ask, you know, startups that are looking for money is, well, if 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 you got, you know, pick a number, two million, five million dollars right now, what would you do with it? And if a startup can't ask answer that question quickly and definitively, then that means they're probably not ready for investment or the opportunity for that investment to go to work for the company is probably not there yet. And maybe it will be at some point, but it's not there now because every startup that's out seeking investment should be able to answer the question of, if you got X amount of money, how would you use it to propel the company forward and take advantage of this opportunity that you have right now? Right. And that helps the uh, investor also assess if that's, you know, a strategy that they think will work and they want to be a part of helping in that way. So very important. Okay. So that brings us to the third section, which is product flow. Um, and now you're really speaking to product managers that talk, talk to us about product flow. Yeah. And I think product, the, the product section probably will, you know, be near and dear to a lot of, a lot of product managers because I talk a lot about some some fundamentals and basics which I, I see you know get sort of violated and bastardized you know frequently by by founders but you know sadly also by a lot of product managers and product people and I always start at the at the most basic level which is what is the problem and what's your level of understanding of the problem mm. and because i don't think that you can build a successful product if you don't understand the problem at an expert level okay and that's some that's something that, that i think throws a lot of people because we're actually not wired to solve problems or, or to understand problems at an expert level before we start to solve them Right. Because we are wired to be solvers and we're wired to solve someone's problem. And so when someone presents us with a problem, our first instinct is to, well, how can I solve this? And that's almost always the worst place to start. And and that instinct gets us into into trouble often. And knowledgeable, experienced product people would, you know, would repel against that. But it's it's even when we know it sort of consciously, right? Subconsciously, it's still really, really hard to say, to take a step back and to say, do we understand this problem well enough to think that we could solve it in a meaningful way? And most of the time, the answer is no, until you're probably six, nine, 
12 months into problem understanding before you can honestly say, yes, we now understand this problem well enough to be able to solve it in a way that would be meaningful. And so, and, and the reason that I like founders and startups the best that have lived with a problem for the longest time is because of this. So when I come across a founder who has lived inside of an industry and inside of a company, maybe even, and, and you say to them, well, when did you identify this problem? And they say, oh, well, I identified it 12 years ago. And it's like, oh, okay. And so you've been sort of learning about this problem, peeling the layers back of this problem and studying this problem for 12 years. Yes. And you've been living with it for 12 years. Yes. That's a founder that's now got a real opportunity to build a product to solve that problem because they understand the problem at an expert level. And I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that we can solve problems in a meaningful way, if we don't understand the the problem at an expert level, because we're going to take the, we're going to take our product to customers and we're going to try to, you know, establish the, the, you know, product market fit, which I don't like that as a label, I actually like customer product fit much better because markets don't buy products, customers do. <laughs> but I think that if, if you don't, if you take your pro, if you take your solution to a customer and you don't understand the problem at an expert level, customers will steamroll the product, steamroll your approach to it. And, and then they might not have very much empathy and sympathy and willingness to actually engage with you around understanding the problem better. And so one of the things that we have to do as product people is to make sure that we're transparent and vulnerable enough with, with customers and users at the beginning that have this problem to say, look, I don't have this. I don't have a solution for you yet. All I'm trying to do is understand the problem to the best in, in, of my ability and to in the deepest way to then maybe start experimenting on solutions. And if you have that level of transparency and vulnerability, people will actually engage with you and dig in to help you get to that le- expert level of problem understanding. Yeah, we need to have those customer conversations for sure. But let's say I don't have 12 years to deeply understand the problem. What are some things I can do to understand this problem more quickly? What, what could Lisa be involved in? Well, I would say, what is it? How did she, how did she identify the problem to begin with? Right. She's mm-hmm. now thinking, okay, there's this thing that the company is not interested in doing. Where did the problem come from? Where did the problem originate? How long has she been aware of the problem? Yep. Why does she? Why is she interested in pursuing it when the company isn't? Right, and to take a real honest look at, well, if the company's not interested, why is that? And there could be legitimate reasons why the company isn't interested, and she is. That still makes sense for her to pursue it. But there also could be reasons inside of why the company's not interested that she shouldn't just cast aside and say, oh, well, you know, they don't, you know, they don't understand, right? And, and I'm the one that, that, you know, has this figured out, et cetera. I think there's a real big dose of, of humility that has to get injected there to say, okay, why is the company not interested, but I am. Mm-hmm. And there could be legitimate reasons there, but I still often see people leave corporates after, after a, a, a 
after the corporate sort of rejects or decides to not pursue a particular initiative and they, they pursue it not because it should be pursued, but they're, they're pursuing it because their egos got damaged because their company decided not to pursue an initiative that they were passionate about. Right. And that's never a good enough reason. Yeah. Yeah. You have to take a personal assessment. There is some stock into your reasons for doing this for understanding that problem. I mean, this whole conversation, this is one reason why we do end up with products that no one wants because we thought we had a great idea and we didn't really deeply understand the problem. So outside of Lisa, I, I do know people who have been successful when they thought they were on to a good idea who would literally go to the mall and stand in the mall f- for a Saturday and Sunday and talk to 100 people uh, about about this problem and just try to understand it more deeply. W- what about approaches like that to try to understand the, understand a problem in a more meaningful way? Oh, absolutely. You, you have to you have to go get in front of your whoever your customers and users are and you have to then understand their perspective and as many angles and perspectives as you can around the problem and yep. you know we we tend to now lean very digitally and sort of very extended right and arm's length you know through surveys and through polls and through buying lists and and those kinds of things that stuff can be informative to the problem understanding process and and our data points for sure. But there is still nothing that beats sitting or standing next to the person that has the problem and having them explain to you and walk you through why the problem exists and, and what the impacts of the problem are. And so whether it's going and standing in a mall or it's getting it's it's going into a factory and standing on the factory floor and and actually watching and engaging with the people that are dealing with the problem or it's getting inside of a retail store that that's the investment that it takes right to be able to ensure that that you're validating that you're you're working on something and you're and you're caring about something that that other people really care about and, and are willing to then give you their problem knowledge. And that's really what you're trying to do at that early stage of problem understanding at an expert level is you're trying to, you're trying to assimilate all of this problem understanding from all these various entities. And you're trying to then become the sort of hub of all of that to then have a chance at, at building a solution to it that people will actually want to use. Yeah, absolutely. Doing observations and interviews are two of my favorite tools for a better understanding of a problem and something we need to be doing throughout the life cycle of a product, not just in the beginning stages too, to keep understanding more deeply how we can make that that our solution better and more valuable for customers. So I love the information in the uh, manual here that you have put together to go through and talk about what that founder's journey is kind of like, the founder's manual. As as listeners know, I love innovation quotes as well. What quote do you have for us? And just tell us uh, why you chose that one, what that one means to you. Yeah, the quote is, you can't be great at innovation without being great at product. And so, you know, hopefully that makes a lot of the, the product people listening, you know, smile and, and emboldens them. Because what I still see happening a lot is people and companies, especially, especially big corporates, think that, that they can be successful in innovation without having a product, a successful product discipline inside of the company. Mm. 
And that's just rarely the case, right? Because if you're pursuing innovation without being great at product, your innovation efforts are really just an exercise in ideation, right? And it's really a creative endeavor to say, well, how many ideas can we come up with or how many problems can we identify? But if you don't actually have a product discipline that you can then take one of those problems and feed it into this product discipline, then the the idea, the innovation idea, creativity engine is just never going to manifest anything of real substance and consequence. So when I talk to people, especially especially at, at corporations about innovation and product, my, my first question to them is, what does your product organization look like? And if they say, well, we haven't exactly established a, a product organization yet, or we're not, or we're pretty immature in that area, my response to them is you should not expect to be good at innovation until you're good at product yeah. because yeah. you can't do one well without the other. Exactly. I see them very much as two sides of the same coin. And people sometimes ask, ask me about the, this podcast itself. It's like, well, you talk about product management and you talk about innovation or those two really different things or not. It's like, Product management and innovation is all the same same bucket of tools, and uh, they go together well, and that's how we frame this podcast. So definitely two sides of the same coin. Thanks so much for sharing that quote. I take it that is your quote, right? We can attribute that to Ryan. I think so. I've, I haven't seen it anywhere else, but yeah. you know, I don't know. It's so hard these days to know whether you said anything unique and interesting <laughs> or not. I, I, I think we're, well, we'll definitely attribute it to you, and it's a great quote for you, to, for you to have shared with us. Thank you for that. For people that want to get their hands on your, on the book, so the Founder's Manual, and also find out about the other work that you do, how, the, how can they do that? The Founder's Manual is available uh, on Amazon, and, and its site is thefoundersmanual.com. And then if people want to plug into some of the other things that, that I have going on, uh, they can go to ryanfrederick.biz. And then there's some jumping off points there to my product firm. And, and I'm, I'm finalizing a second book now. So there'll be information about that up on that site in the very near future. So yeah, those are some ways that people can get in touch. That's exciting. And and finalizing another book is no small feat. If you just wrote one on, especially, uh, you know what that's like to do another one. Can you give us a, a hint of what that topic is going to be, what it's going to address? Yeah, this, the next book is about growing and running a professional services firm. Hmm. So I've been, I've been a partner. I've historically been part of starting product companies, software product companies more specifically. And nine years ago, I joined um, AWH and we're a product and data consulting firm as a partner. And so I've learned, and it was my real first exposure at running a professional services firm. And so the book really speaks to the, the challenges of growing and running a professional services firms and how that differs from running a product company. Yeah, very good. And there are some big differences. And I could have used that book in 1999 when I was helping with professional services. So I'll have to check that out as well. Ryan, thank you so much for your help today, helping us think about, even if we're inside a company, what that new venture idea might look like as an entrepreneur. And if we're going to make the leap, what it might look like as an entrepreneur. Chad, thanks for having me. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products that customers love. You'll find all the written details of that discussion with Ryan, all the key strategies, plus that one-page action guide to help you take action now at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 302. Keep innovating. 
Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit TheEverydayInnovator.com.